0: you have your Bible or a Bible app. It's going to be from Luke 11:5 through 13. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good
1: morning. What up? Hello. Um, if I'm squinting this morning... Um, I was telling Kadeem, um, I was at a coffee shop, and I think while I was sitting there, they were like burning pork fat or something in the back, it was just like burning my eyes while I was sitting there, (laughs) so get a a latte with a side of your eyes getting burned, you know what I'm saying? All right, hey, uh, we want to welcome you to Hope Jersey City this morning, we're we're transitioning to a new series, and it's about prayer, and there's this image in Revelation 5 that describes prayer, and this image... Um, might confirm every apprehension about prayer you might have ever had. You know, our, our culture today sees prayer as overly sentimental, um, functionally unnecessary, and lacking of any real prayer. And there's this image in Revelation 5 that might confirm just that. And it goes like this in Revelation 5 verse 8. The text says there were four living creatures. It's describing, you know, the, the, what's going on in the throne room. So there are four, four living creatures and there's 24 elders. They fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Uh, Prayers as incense filling golden bowls. Now, um, this image of prayer as incense might be frustrating because you're thinking that's overly ethereal, right? When when your family member is sick, the last thing you want is um, this picture of something so, light and ethereal the the picture for me the modern day image of um for people who are part of the essential oils movement you know if, if anyone has a diffuser at home we keep one right next to our bedside and the last thing you want to believe is that your vision of prayer is is similar to the thing that helps you sleep at night and for some of us it feels that way right that praying is equivalent to something that lulls us to sleep um and prayer doesn't invigorate us um it helps us get calm. And that's the, that's the image we have of prayer. Um, but what if it doesn't have to? And, and because prayer, I mean, even among those who call themselves followers of Jesus, is often misunderstood and, and neglected. It's one of the many areas for Christians as a whole where we, we talk a big game, but if we're honest, if we're truly honest, is a place of confusion, a place of disappointment. And so we start this series, this new sermon series on prayer, prayer. Um, and, it, and there's a focus on comments that Jesus made about prayer: um, comments, stories, exhortations, parables, he told. Um, and, and I you know, I, I would consider it a master class in prayer, because it's Jesus teaching us how. Um, I actually suggested it to, to Devlin and Craig as a theme, but they hated it. Um, they didn't say they hated it. they just never replied to my emails, which is functionally saying, they hate it. Uh, but if we're asking Jesus about what it means to pray, and he tells us, I mean, consider it a master class. And, um, and what, what I find this morning when we're, when we're in Luke 11 is that he gives us three things on prayer. The how, how we are to pray, where to begin, which ultimately helps us to see where, where it ends. Where does it end? So three things this morning. First, how, um, two, where to begin And then I think this passage helps us to see, as it points forward, um, where does it end? And so let me read again the start, the first few verses of, of Luke 11. It goes like this. And Jesus said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children Are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give to him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, um, other translations say shameless, pleading, he will arise and give him whatever he needs. Um, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives and the one who knocks, seeks, finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened now, what we have in the story is, is this man who receives a surprise guest, and, and the host didn't have food for them. Now, um, in, in, in that part of, of the world, uh, there was this expectation that you would host. Now, the problem was uh, there, there were no preservatives for food, and so it was, it was very common that you wouldn't have anything extra. You just don't have a refrigerator sitting with, with stock full of things that you could hand to people, you know, throw in the microwave and... And give them something to eat. And so there was this cultural expectation that, that you would host. But um, it, it's not surprising that he's not ready. And so what does he do? It says that um, that he goes and he, and he starts knocking on his neighbor's door. And one thing we have to know is that most of these homes are one room houses. And so that means waking up um, one person in the house would have, would have most likely meant waking up everyone in the house. In addition to that... Um, we find that, that houses in, in, that part of, in, in that time, in that part of history, were packed closely together. And so he's not only waking up one house. There's a good chance he's waking up all the neighbors. His one option to fulfill his societal duty to, to plead and to host um, is, is only going to happen as if he pleads shamelessly. And this is the story Jesus tells when he describes to his disciples how they ought to pray. There is a, a desperation that he has that leads to an aggressiveness, a wake-up-the-neighborhood kind of aggressiveness. Now, now church folk, right, church folk like us, um, can be really, uh, can be so reserved and quiet. And, and New York Christians are especially funny um, because, because New York Christians, you know, we, we shove and, and to get on subways in the morning. We yell at people when we feel disrespected. We advocate with passion, screaming, pleading, protesting for causes we care about. But when we get into religious spaces, um, all of that seems to turn off. We get reserved. We feel that, that, you know this church pressure to pretend like we're not the mess we really are. And in the formalness of settings like this, we pray words that we haven't really internalized. We, we pray words that don't speak to the, our uneven emotional condition. And praying in the Bible, if we really look at the Bible, can get awkward. Because if you're reading through the Psalms, you're often reading, the author is praying for what to happen to his enemies? C.S. Lewis talks about this image of the, the, the way that um, the, the authors of, of Psalms um, would see themselves. It's almost as if, you know, Christians always talk about this criminal court, right? That we're the defendants and, and God, um, God, 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 God gives us um, a, a righteous verdict. But he says the picture is more of a civil case Well, we're the plaintiff and we're, we're begging God to act on our behalf for maximum damages, right? There's this pleading in the Psalms that don't make sense to us as modern day Christians. And the question is, one of the questions this morning is um, the passion, desperation and shameless, shameless pleading that we show on a regular basis. What would it look like if, if we took that to God? You know, I feel like if Jesus was walking around New York City and our areas looking for disciples who would find you at your most emotionally desperate, pleading with your barista to get your order in so you can get back to your meeting, begging your disobedient children before you lose your mind, and he would say, you know, pray with that same energy. Pray with that kind of aggressive determination. The amount of passion and desperation and shameless pleading for favors and extensions it took you to get that last project finished. I feel like Jesus would say, when you pray, come with that kind of energy. Same energy. Young people in the room, get that one. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. But if we're honest, we probably respond and say, but you don't understand. I come with that sort of passion and energy for those things because I live for those things. Also, there was a time in my life when I prayed for something and nothing really ever happened. I'm going to tell you my story. Um, There's a picture of it. Um, In my notes, I have it as the fourth or fifth grade. So um, there was this magazine I loved growing up called Slam Magazine. Um, It was the authority on urban culture in America with fantastic writing that would never never make it in most other magazines, but I loved it. And um, look at the top headline. I found this for you guys. Um, It said, Win every NBA team jersey. Every jersey, That's, that was at the time I think it was like 30 jerseys, it was, it's 2003. I found the cover, all right? Google's amazing. And I pleaded with God. I said, Lord, would you give me, I mean, this is the seventh grade, I said, Lord, would you give me every jersey? If you flip open the cover, it said that you could wear a different jersey every day, and I said, Lord, please, a different jersey every day? Stephon Marbury on Monday? Jason Kidd on Tuesday? Baron Davis? Lord, please, and I was convinced he would give it to me because I'd never pleaded for anything in my life, and I said, Lord, would you give me this? trying to, uh, they didn't say stunt at the time, but I'm, you know, I said, Lord, would you give it to me? And he didn't. I know, I know. He didn't. It was confusing. I thought we're supposed to seek. I thought we're supposed to knock. There's often extreme confusion about what exactly we're supposed to pray for. Um, and this is where we turn to the second part of the message. So if, if we start, Jesus starts by talking about how we, how we ought to pray with shameless, shameless pleading. The question is, where do we begin? What exactly are we, are we to be praying for? Um, and I think Jesus is helpful here because it's a master class. Um, read, let's, let's read verses 11 to 13. So, so first part, um, how to pray. Second, where to begin. Start in verse 11. It says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You have to read that again on your own. Um, because the question, question is, is there excitement when you get to the end when you hear that the Father gives us the Holy Spirit? To be honest, reading it can often feel like a letdown. Because we would rather something it was, it, we would rather it was something more tangible, more financially lucrative. Am I right? Amen. Um, so I just heard this past week that Mega Millions. This is when I was researching it on Thursday, it reached 444 million. Um, with a cash payout option of $281 million. Um, it, it, if you factor in taxes, an estimate would be that you'd have $177 million in your pocket. Now, if, if you insert mega millions lottery in that part of the verse that reads, you actually get the Holy Spirit, does that get your imagination and heart beating a little faster? You know, for me, I mean, it's powerful. I'm telling you, just go through the exercise, sit there one day and think, $177 million. Now, to me, my mind quickly goes to the family office I would want to build. It goes to the friends from Seattle, Denver, Chicago, Tampa. I would try to convince to quit their jobs so that we could all start things together. The college tuitions I no longer have to worry about. Our imaginations work so naturally when we're asked to dream about large sums of money. Am I right? What if we understood the gravity of what Jesus is saying here? When he says the Father gives us the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying the Father gives us the very presence of God himself. And we usually find more valuable the things God gives, the tangible things, more than God himself. And, and the list of things we pray for is proof of it. What if we believed the place to begin with shameless pleading um, was to begin with, a shameless, with shameless pleading for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be heavy in our lives? What difference would that make? Because if, if we look at other passages in scripture and it tells us about what the fruits of the Holy Spirit are, and, and many of you know the list, um, it goes like this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What I want to argue here is that the Father's gift of the Holy Spirit is the most practical, transformative gift you can ever receive. Every dysfunction in your life, in your marriage, in your family falls within a deficiency in one of those categories. Don't you see that these characteristics are everything you are trying to pursue? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What would your marriage look like if you were actually faithful, patient, and kind? What would your career look like if you had more self-control? If you had deep, abiding peace instead of the anxiety that you struggle with? What would it look like? It contrasts with the pictures of the flesh, right? Where um, just a, a few sentences before that, it says, Under The works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So so it it contrasts with fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, jealousy. Are you overcome with jealousy when you're in the workplace? What would would happen if you weren't overcome with that? The gifts of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit himself, the presence of God is the most transformative gift you can ever receive. (laughs) However, we... We, we only treat it, we only treat prayer as a lever we pull when things do not seem to be happening to the level of our expectations in our pursuit of upward mobility and comfortable prosperity. Um, my buddy was, uh, was coaching me up. He just graduated uh, business school. He's, um, he landed this job where his first gig out of business school is going to be uh, leading a company of 50, right? Um, and so, you know, to have a bunch of, of talented men and women fresh out of business school to run these companies, um, the, their group built this playbook. And the playbook has, has seven levers you can pull, right? So examples would be, you know, pricing, sales and marketing, leaders, their distinctive leadership strategy. So every problem that they find in order to grow your company, it all happens within seven levers that are very tangible. And similarly, I feel like we see ourselves as managers of our lives and we usually see prayer as, as a simple lever we pull. It's a simple lever we pull in the direction of our best life. In this equation, God is the mechanism we leverage towards the life we always dreamed. He provides merely a psychological buffer as we battle the ebbs and flows of our own self-centered, self-initiated journey. But Jesus is saying we're supposed to plead for God's presence in our lives. We're to plead for the Holy Spirit because when he enters, everything you actually need follows. Not what you think you need, but what you actually need, it follows. Um, Psalm 27 reads like this. Seek, you've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Tim Keller on his book on prayer talks about the face as one's relationship gate. It's the beginning of intimate friendship, relationship, truly knowing each other. There's something that happens when you're in conversation, you see somebody's face versus something that happens over the phone. Um, if face is the gateway to relationship, then I would, I would say that hands speak of the things that God can give. And um, one of the main questions I want us to wrestle with this morning is, are you seeking his face or only his hands? Jesus is saying we ought to shamelessly plead for his face, for his presence. It's the most practical thing we can ask for because if we seek his face, everything else follows from there. So here's, here's a challenge. Every day for three weeks, spend at least six minutes. Spend at least six minutes. Now, there's nothing holy about three weeks. Nothing holy about six minutes. It's, it's, uh, I once heard from my uh, Korean pastor and mentor that it takes three weeks to build a habit. So three weeks. Um, six minutes because it's usually about the length of two songs that I'll play in the background. Um, so so uh, three weeks, six minutes praying variations of Lord would you just give me your face I want your presence fill me with your presence everything in my life is open to you give me your presence three weeks of Lord I just I want you I want you solely I want you completely there's so many things that my heart bounces to Lord but I want an imagination for you the way I have an imagination for the lottery I want imagination for you like like I have a natural imagination for the lottery If you commit to this, let's schedule coffee in a month. And and I want to hear how the Lord is, what he's doing. Because I believe he'll do something. So one, where to begin? Uh, How do we pray? We pray with shameless pleading. Two, where to begin? We, We plead for his face and not just his hands. We plead for his face and not just his hands. Three, where does it end? Where does it end? Now, Revelation 8 picks up on the image that we find in Revelation 5 about the imagery. Um, and And it says this in verse 2, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So this angel, who's sitting on the throne, takes this diffuser-looking thing. Now, if you Google censer, it actually does look like a diffuser. It's amazing. So he takes this censer, Fills it with fire from the altar and he throws it on the earth, and, and what we find are thunder and earthquakes, which depict God's righteous purposes being released upon the earth. And so our prayers our prayers lead to the releasing of God's purposes on the earth. What was ethereal incense becomes explosive. Then our experience of Him can become explosive. Our prayers have that kind of weight. So I learned this. Um, so I grew up in Filipino church, but I, I really learned about prayer when I was with um, a Korean church in college. I didn't know this, but the Koreans have this like early morning prayer. And a lot of you are probably still here in the faith because you had a mom or a grandma who was praying for you at one of these Korean, uh, Korean church early morning prayer sessions. As, as, as hard as you tried to get away, you know, the prayers of, of your grandma and your mom, you know, a generation ago are keeping you here. Um... And I watched them pray. My goodness. 5.36, just pleading. Old women, you know. (laughs) Pleading before God, calling out to the Lord, asking him to act. And I'd never seen a desperation like that in prayer before. Um, And what I found, I mean, those moments of learning Learning from these, from this example, it continues to color everything I, I, I know about what it means to seek the Lord faithfully. Um, and what I, what I've found as as I look back on those years, uh, those prayers, those prayers um, for His presence released His purposes in my life, and the release His His purposes and and the the people around me. An example of history about what these explosions could look like. Now in church history. And this is this is mostly where we close. Um, there's this there's this man named Count Zinzendorf, Ludwig van Zinzendorf. Um, he was he was around in the 1700s. He bought he he was in Germany, right? And and he came from means, but never quite fit in um, to like the religious vibe of the time. And so he bought some land, and he invited these religious exiles to live in his land and on his property and they formed about 300 400 people so they're religious exiles and at the time kind of like theological purity was was of utmost importance and so they just you know they're they were a little wild um it, it, just in temperament and um what what they found was that um it was it was a, just a, there was a lot of disunity because people believed different things and um and, and he went and visited different people in, in their homes on his, on his land. And he was just begging for Christian unity. He was begging for unity. And, and the story goes that that Sunday, as they, as they prayed together in unity, um, there was the equivalent of what they call the Moravian Pentecost. Um, the, the community, their community of, of Moravians. Um, and, and what they did was they committed to pray. Two people, nothing, nothing extravagant, two people. Every hour, just taking turns. And this prayer meeting, this, they called it the round the clock prayer watch. And these two, they had two people praying for an hour. It lasted 100 years. And in the midst of that prayer, they got a vision for international engagement. Now, I mean, so this group was only about 300 or 400 people, but they had a vision of international engagement. And, and their leader, Ludwig, uh, Count Ludwig Zinzerdorf, heard a story about a slave coming to faith. Um, and realized that some of the most neglected parts of the world were the slave islands of the British Empire. Um, some, one of the more famous stories is two people, two, two people in the Moravian community sold themselves into slavery in order to lead slaves um, in the Caribbean to faith. Um, 65 years after the start of, of their commencement the, um, of this prayer watch, this small Moravian community had about 300 missionaries to the ends of the year 300 and you're thinking you know 300 that's not much um but what's amazing is the fruits of of how their story connects with other future stories so for example in regards to revivals john wesley right the the um the the famous founder of uh, the methodist movement um he first met moravians in his voyage to the u.s and and he was on a ship On the Atlantic and there was a storm that tore the mast of the ship and everybody was terrified except the Moravians who prayed and sang hymns. And and he remembered thinking, I don't have the internal fortitude the way that they do. Um, He experienced some heartbreak in the U.S. and he went back to England and he sought out Moravians. And there's this famous story that Devlin mentioned a few months ago about his heart being warmed. right? His heart being warmed as they read scripture and that happened at a Moravian prayer gathering. It happened uh, as a Moravian minister was reading aloud. Um, scripture. He, he would later um, lead this revival movement and the Moravians are largely credited with heavily influencing his approach to Christianity. Now when it comes to evangelism there was this man William Carey who's credited with starting the modern missions movement and William Carey entered a Baptist meeting of, for, for, um, for, for enga- engagement in missions and he, he showed everyone a pamphlet and said why can't we go after those who don't know Jesus like that like the Moravians. Why don't, we go over, go after the, why don't we go after non-believers the way that Moravians do it with passion? And that launched the modern missions movement. When it regards to justice, William Wilberforce, who, who led the um, abolitionist movements um, in England, used Moravian accounts of slavery, coming to faith, and living peacefully among each other in the Caribbean to disprove long-held racist attitudes and argue for ending England's participation in the transatlantic slave trade. He was ultimately successful, but so much of it depended on um, Moravian testimony about what was going on in the colonies. Last, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, um, who I, I feel like has become more popular in, in recent years. Um, his mother had Moravian roots. Um, his father was a secular academic psychologist, um, but his mother, his mother was a faithful woman of God um, who traced herself to the Moravian church. And he later wrote The Cost of Discipleship and, and himself led the Nazi resistance movement against the state church. Against, he led the Nazi resistance movement when the state church of Germany had bowed the knee to Hitler and Hitler's purposes. So this little movement of exiles who wouldn't pass the eye test when it came to large gatherings. There weren't big churches with, with large amounts of people um, but as they sought the Lord in prayer for, for decades and decades and decades, what the Lord did was slowly multiply their movement to plant seeds in, in larger movements, m- larger movements that in many ways give us, give us the background for a lot of our faith today. And they had 300, 400 people. And what we find in, when we read in Scripture, Jesus really only had 12. And so the question this morning is, do we have 12? Do we have 12 who will plead shamelessly to God and say, Lord, we want your presence more than we want anything? more than mega millions. Lord, we want your presence. We know that only your presence can be the thing that heals our families. We know that your presence can only be the thing that gives us purpose. Lord, we want your presence. And whatever you did to the Moravians, long ago, Lord, would you do it again? Even if no one ever knows our name, if they had to look all the way down the line from people who are in our church who contributed in a small way planting seeds to people who become movement leaders and revivalists, Lord, even if we get to play a small part, would you give us your presence? Would you give us your presence? The, the fundamental assumption about why we gather is there's a hunger that people have for God. And that's why you come. On beautiful days when, when everyone else is going to go, you know, grab cocktails at lunch. and um, You come because there's a hunger for God. And you could point it. I mean, the, the world is so good at pointing it a hundred different directions. And your imagination can go naturally after so many things. But what we want to say this morning is there's nothing like his presence. And so it would be a people that plead for his presence, plead shamelessly. Wake the neighbors kind of pleading. Wake the town up. Let them know that um, there's nowhere else you can find your satisfaction, purpose, and joy apart from his presence. I want to call the band up as we move to a time of prayer and communion. Um, so, the, so the Moravians, as we go in time of communion, um, the Moravians, they weren't known for ecstatic outbursts. Right? When we think about prayer, it wasn't, um, there w- it w- it wasn't any like, emotional outbursts. It was just a deep reflection on the person of Jesus, on the work of Jesus. It's a deep reflection on, on picturing him on the cross and seeing what he's done for you. Believing that the God of the universe, in order for you to have a connection with him, um, gave himself ultimately for you. And so as, in this time as we prepare for communion, would you take a moment... And in pleading for his presence, just reflect on what he's done for you. Um, I'm going to ask you uh, to come down the middle and out through the sides. But, um, yeah, down through the middle and out to the sides. Um, we'll have people to pray. If you, if you, if you want to pray, you want to say, Lord, I, I want to I spend the next three weeks, six minutes of my day. I'll hide in the bathroom. People think that I've got stomach problems, but I'm really just seeking your presence, God. Make it true for me. Make it true for me. If you want to make that commitment, there'll be people in the back um, who want to pray for you. Um, Let's pray. We'll lead to a time of reflection. And then, as you feel led, you can come up down through the middle and out through the sides. Let's pray.